Rev it up and welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 1,855. I guess when I say today rev it up, it's going to be kind of a quiet rev because today we're going to be talking about Formula E. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Hello, inspiring automotive enthusiasts, and welcome to Cars Yeah. Today I'm in beautiful Huntington in the United Kingdom, across the pond as we say over here, with a very special guest by the name of Sam Smith. Sam, welcome to Cars Yeah. Do you have it in gear, and are you ready to release the clutch? But I'm not so sure there is a clutch in the cars we're going to be talking about today. Thank you very much, Mark. It's a pleasure to be speaking to you today. No, I'm driving full electric, all electric today. So we're going to hit the hit the loud pedal and, uh, you know, zero torque. We're off. So, yeah, looking forward to it. We're off indeed, because today we're talking about Formula E. Now, before I give you a proper introduction, Sam, would you share one little thing that most people maybe don't know about you? Wow. Let me think. Well, I don't know if this is if people know about this in the States, but there is a there's a big personality over here in the UK called Stephen Fry, who is a big TV personality. And uh, I worked with him for a full day, which was one of the best experiences of my my life. Um, extremely intelligent guy, does lots of uh, lots of travel documentaries, extremely uh, erudite kind of broadcaster. And um, I worked on a documentary and I, I worked with him for a full day and it was an absolute joy. So he's a huge fan of the States and does a lot of traveling in the states and has done documentaries which have been shown over here but i'm sure some of your uh, some of your listeners and viewers will will know the name stephen fry so that's my i guess my little claim to fame and what most people don't know about me so you know what's really fun is when we meet people who are celebrities like that television movie stars and so forth and they end up being great you go wow what a wonderful experience it was with that person versus the other side of it going, oh, what a jerk that guy was. I, it's such a rewarding thing because everything you've built this person up into is what you think it is. So uh, what a fun project you got to do. Very unique thing, right? It was. And it was. Um, it actually involved quite a lot of the, the documentary itself involved a lot of interviewing of uh, U.S. personalities, uh, racing personalities. So people that names that you know and love like Mario Andretti, AJ Foyt, trying to think of us, Bobby Rahal, you know, great champions of the past. And it was, it was to do with a company called Lola that I used to work with. And, and Lola Racing Cars are, I'm sure, known throughout the US for achieving some great results at Indy and in other championships throughout the 70s and 80s and 90s. And yeah, you know, they, they say, don't they, don't meet your heroes. But in the case of Mario, it was, it, it sort of busted that myth completely, an absolute legend. And um, I think the only true time where I have been you know completely starstruck was meeting mario andretti and, and it was a complete privilege and, and pleasure so i'll always remember that day as well no kidding uh lola i raced a t290 sports racer for uh quite a few years in vintage racing and it was a wonderful car it was an ex joe bonnier car and wow. i had the blue gatanes livery on it with the dancing spanish lady uh, i guess nice. was for cigarettes like they supported so many things that was a wonderful car really loved driving that car what a model. I mean, that is, you know, those two-liter sports cars, I think, were some of the greatest cars 
built by Lola. I, you know, I I was fortunate enough to work for Lola for ten years and wow. worked with a lot of the the historic cars of the of the day as well. T seventies, T two nine twos, T three thirty, Formula five thousand cars. Absolute beast. I mean, completely different to the cars that I follow today. But you know, I'm, I'm a great believer actually, Mark, in the fact that. Uh, the diversity of racing in particular is so great you've got to you've got to embrace pretty much everything and um while the the monday all electric cars that i'm involved with now with formula e are, in my mind great and future relevant i always like to see the t70s in action at historic races in, in the uk and beyond actually so always a joy to hear those things and you know I can still hear them in my ear because it sort of resonates throughout the throughout your brain, doesn't it, when you hear those things? So. First time I went out in one, I was so excited I forgot to put my earplugs in before I put my helmet on. And oh my, yeah, I think my ears rang for a week after that because <laughs> like, I had been racing a uh, Lotus Formula Junior, you know, an 18. That car was loud, but nothing like that two liter. So, uh, yeah, that well, ringing ears. It was, I mean, those cars which were penned by Eric Broadley, who was the, the founder and uh, the custodian of, of Lola and the Lola name for so many years. I was fortunate enough to meet Eric a number of times and talk about some of the old days with him. And, and Joe Bonnier actually was a very good good friend of his uh, and of Graham Hill, of course. Uh, Gra- Graham and Joe Bonnier were, were sort of best buddies. And, and Eric used to regale us with a few tales of, spending weekends at, at Joe's house in obviously in Switzerland I'm not sure whereabouts but I don't know if you know much about Joe Bonnier but he was he was famous for having in his house a car and I'm trying to remember which car it was it, it could well have been uh it could well have been one of his F1 cars which he mounted on the wall above, above the fireplace of yeah. The office yeah in his living room which I thought that's a cool thing you know if I ever own a race car that's exactly what I'm going to do after I've been been uh, racing it around the circuit so very cool guy what a legacy as well well let me give you a proper introduction we're going to dive into formula e here sam smith is a journalist and media specialist with extensive experience specifically in formula e endurance sports car racing as you can tell from our pre-show chat and many other categories of motorsports he has attended all but six formula e races since the start of the series back in 2014 and is reported on formula e for autosport motorsport.com and the e-racing 360 website. He's also been the host of many post-race press conferences in the FAA world, Endurance Championship, and Formula E. Sam has contributed to many magazines also, including Motorsport, Race Car Engineering, Motorsport Actuel. Did I say that right? Actuel? That's how I say it. Uh, my German's not great, but... Actuel and the official FIA magazine. He resides in Cambridgeshire, United Kingdom, and is part of the founding editorial team of the Race Digital Motorsports Channel. And today we're going to talk about his new book titled Formula E, Racing for the Future. It's a behind-the-scenes look into the world premiere all-electric racing series. We'll be back in a minute, but first a word from our sponsor, so sit tight, keep the seatbelts on. It may be quiet but we're going to be moving fast today. We'll be right back. One of your vehicle's interior surfaces that gets a lot of abuse is your dashboard. The sun beats down and those damaging UV rays cause massive heat cycles, resulting in color changes and sometimes cracks. My friends at Covercraft have a great solution for you and for me. Their custom-tailored dash mats protect your dash from heat buildup while providing a stylus solution. You can choose from a variety of styles and colors, including carpet, suede mat, that's the one I have for my vehicles, Carhartt, limited edition velour mats, and the Ultimat for trucks and SUVs. Another great benefit of your Covercraft dash mat 
is that it eliminates the harsh glare the sun produces from your dash to the inside of your windshield, which can make driving a hazard. Covercraft's Dash Mat Design Center is located in Arizona, where they know about harsh sun. I've got a special deal for you. If you use the code YEAH21, Y-E-A-H-21, at Covercraft.com, you'll get 10% off your Covercraft order. That's right, 10% off. Just use the code YEAH21 at checkout. Covercraft, protecting the things that move you. I was talking with a buddy of mine the other day and he asked me about American Collectors Insurance. He said, while I listen to you on Cars Yeah, you're always talking about agreed value collector car insurance. Well, I insure all my cars on my regular auto insurance policy and I've done it for years. Why use a different company for my collector cars? I get a multi-car discount. Isn't that good enough? I suggested he call his carrier and ask how much he would get if his collector car was totaled are stolen. He called back and said, boy, that was a scary conversation. Their value of my car wasn't even close to what it's really worth. Thank you for the education, Mark. So don't just hope for a fair claim settlement. Be certain and know exactly what you'll receive with an agreed value policy. American Collectors Insurance has been protecting enthusiasts since 1976. Give them a call today for your personal agreed value quote at 866-ACI-YEAH. That's 866 866- 224-9324. Tell them you're a friend of Mark Green's at Cars Yeah. American Collectors Insurance, classic car insurance, designed by collectors for collectors, automotive enthusiasts just like you and me. They're the ones that insure my car. That's American Collectors Insurance. All right, Sam. So we're going to dive a little deeper into the corner and talk about Formula E, because when this whole series came out, a lot of us diehard Formula One fans, racing fans like you and I, kind of went, oh, yawn, I don't think this is going to be very interesting. No sound. Come on. What are we talking about? We love Formula One, that ripping canvas that I always talk about, the old V12s and even the 10s of the racing days. So let's start with what, well, this is a bigger, too big of a question, really, what you've learned with this. So I want to talk about why you chose Formula E, what has your interest with Formula E, and then we're going to dive into some of the details of what's going on with the history, the technology, drivers' opinions, and of course, the races to date. So uh, start your electric motor, (laughs) and we'll have some fun. Well, yeah, they don't have warm-up laps in Formula E races, so it's, um, you know, the lights go out and you go, so uh, I'll go for it, Mark. I always think that racing in particular is, it's always looking forward. You know, we just talked about some of the old stuff, which I I love as much as any person. But but to me, professionally, the future relevancy of technology and where the automotive industry, to some extent, is going to go in the future, just got me very curious about this new championship, which formed in 2014. And actually, prior to that, even at Lola, when I finished Lola in 2012, they had an all-electric sports prototype which we did some straight line testing and it never raced. Obviously there was no series around for that to happen in. And and then this FIA tender went out to promote a new all electric single seater championship. And I was just intrigued, really. I was covering sports cars and a little bit of Formula One at the time. I thought this was something a bit new. Went to a race, my first race in Uruguay of all places, a place called Punta del Este, right by the Atlantic Ocean, and was just, yeah, intrigued by what was going on. It was quite a small scale then. They were using, each driver was using two cars, which 
kind of was a bit of a problem for some of the manufacturers that were looking at the championship. They started in one car. They did a mandatory pit stop around about half distance, which was probably 20 minutes into the race, and then hopped in another car and finished finished the race in that. Wow. You know, you've got to start somewhere. And people, you know, we we talk about cynicism. We talk about people criticizing the championship at the start. And, and, you know, I count myself among those people who were a bit cynical about it. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons was they they couldn't evidence the range over a race with these single-seater cars. Now, I think what what made the championship credible was that it had a really robust roadmap, technological roadmap for the championship. It had some really good drivers, so some XF1 guys like Nick Heidfeld, Lucas Degrassi, Sebastian Buemi, uh, Jean-Éric Verne, who became a, a double champion in the series. So the credibility was always there at the start, but I think to get into people's consciousness, it had to be seen as being attractive. It had to get rid of these some of these uh, fallacies of you know, the cars won't go up hills or the noise, it ruins the spectacle. Now, taking the elephant in the room, as we say here in the UK, the elephant in the room here is the noise, because it does take a little bit of a tuning to for people who've been to racing before to accept that there is very little noise in a race car. But you know what? I went out for the first free practice session in Uruguay that December, December 2014. And within, I would say, five, 10 minutes, I completely forgot about it. You get attuned to it. Um, you don't miss it. And in fact, having done 17 or 18 Le Mans in my time and hearing rumbling Chevys and Panoses and whatever, it was a little bit of a relief, I have to say. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, you, you just get attuned to it and it just becomes part of the spectacle. And actually, you hear the you, you hear the brakes, you hear the regen, you you hear the, the tyres locking. You, you get little nuances within what the drivers are doing, what the cars are doing, how they're behaving, how they're cornering. You hear them hit the curbs, you hear them hit the walls, yeah, <laughs> which yeah. uh, you don't necessarily hear. And, and it's a, just a, something new, something fresh. And actually, you know, I've said this many times to the naysayers and the doubters and the people who go back to that, you know, there's no noise, it can't be racing. Well, you know, I grew up in the 80s and the 80s was one of the best periods of Formula One, the turbos, that these monstrous 1,200-brake oh. horsepower cars, the Brabham's, the Ferrari's, the, the Renault's and, and Williams and so forth, with the, the great heroes, the Senna's, the Profs, the Mansell's, we all know. But you know what? There was very little noise with those turbos. You heard the you heard the wastegates. You heard the popping and banging. There wasn't a great noise. And I don't remember people really complaining back then about that because it was such a spectacle. So, you know, it does take a bit of, uh, you know, you've got to sort of change your settings a little bit. But I, I think with the technology and where the world is going in terms of more electric cars coming on board, I just intrigued me how they were going to make this work. And the first few years, there were lots of bumps in the road and the thing nearly died after that race in Uruguay. They ran out of money, which is actually in the book and a fascinating part of the book to chronicle. But it was just, yeah, I think all the... You know, a lot of people in racing are intrigued by what the future might hold. That's all part and parcel of why engineers love working in racing, you know, and, mm-hmm. and trying to trying to understand where things are going um, in a few years' time. And and I was no different. You know, I'm, I'm very far from a technical person, really. But it just intrigued me to see how teams and drivers were were coping with this new this new electric kid on the block. 
Well, you think about racing, a lot of racing, especially at the higher echelons of Formula One, there's a lot of innovation technologies happening. And when these car marks get involved with this, then that trickles down. I'm a Porsche fanatic. You think of Porsche and all the things they designed into cars many started in race cars and they became normal like four-wheel drive for instance you know you think of paris dakar the 959s the turbocharged engines and then of course that just became the norm for the street cars and when you think about electric cars what i believe has really engaged us enthusiasts is the speed involved especially the stop to the the standing start to acceleration is so crazy fast we think of the us kids playing slot cars right and how fast those slot cars move and that's got to benefit the whole thing so history wise technology rises it wises a lot of what you go into with your book another interesting aspect though that i loved about the book was the driver's viewpoint because someone's got to drive these things and you my initial thought was well who are these drivers guys that wanted to be f1 racers but couldn't be f1 racers so they get dropped down to this so-called well i called it at the time lowly but no these cars are very cool looking i mean they look just as cool to me as a f1 car indy car anything like that but they are fast so what did you learn talking with the drivers and their perspective of what it's like to get in these race cars and participate in an event Well, the overriding thing from a driver's point of view is actually how deceptively difficult these things are to drive. Actually, not necessarily drive, the whole package of communicating with their engineers during a race. So what they're doing over a race is they are managing the usable energy which they get. They get a certain amount of usable energy to use. It's 54 kilowatts an hour. Um, that they get for a 45 minute plus one lap race. Now you have got to manage that. So it's it, it's actually really no different to the amount of petrol or, or, or diesel that you get. Right. Managing fuel in an F1 race is key to the race. You, how many races Absolutely. have we seen where the guy runs out, he's in the lead, he runs out of fuel the last lap and yeah. there you go. But of course, you've, you know, you've got so many variables in a race with energy. You've got the efficiency of the powertrain. So regulatory the powertrain cluster is actually free. So the manufacturers are allowed to develop their own motors, inverters, and gearbox, whereas the the battery and the chassis are spec. So they've got a nice structure there to the, uh, what you call the roadmap, the technological roadmap of Formula E, which is part and parcel of the stability it's had really since it was founded. But drivers-wise, one one conversation really stood out for me, and that was in season uh, four of the championship back in 20, that was the 2017-2018 season. And a driver joined a team, and this driver was called Andre Lotterer. Now, Andre Lotterer is a three-time Le Mans winner with Audi in the last decade. And he has since gone on to drive for Porsche, the Porsche team in, in Formula E. And he has driven just about every race car you can imagine. He's even done a couple of kart races over in the States back in 2002 I believe he's raced in Japan extensively which is a super difficult uh, national championship called uh, it was then called Formula Nippon now called Super Formula he's won Le Mans as I said he's even started one Grand Prix uh, back in I think 2014 and he is the sort of driver's driver so he's your 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 meat and potatoes guy he loves Audi Quattros he, lo- he loves the history of the sport he's a massive massive Porsche enthusiast uh, and Andre I spoke to him and I said you know this is very different for you how are you getting on and he said sam this is the most difficult thing i've probably ever done 
in racing. Wow. And I was quite taken aback by that because right. this is a guy who has been in the, the hybrid era of LMP racing at Le Mans and, and Sebring and so forth, you know, a hardcore endurance racer. And the reason he said that was the amount of brain capacity you need to communicate with your engineer, telling him quite often in crypto so quite often they have codes for things so other teams don't listen in and, and know where they're going on their strategy yeah so not not only have they got to describe things like you know the energy figures they're getting on their dash they've got to well they've got a race with 23 other guys which is takes a lot of your, your motor skills obviously right. but they've also got to manage the thermal the thermal temperature of the battery they've got to be efficient in their racing and they've got to They've got to trade that off with being aggressive with other other people in the race. And they also have things like the attack mode. So the attack mode is twice, usually twice during a race, although it could be more than that, more activations. You activate a transponder offline at a designated corner, which gives you an extra boost of 35 kilowatts of power. Whoa. Right? And you do that. It's mandatory. You've got to do it twice, and it lasts for four minutes, and you do that in the 45 minutes. And you have to activate that with a, an activation on the steering wheel, as well as feeding that into your whole overall strategy oh my of the race. Wow. So these guys constantly thinking now when you see a formula e driver immediately after a race they are in a different place you know they have been concentrating so hard with multiple inputs from their engineer they're speaking to constantly during the race the energy figures the thermal management of the of the battery the way that they're cadencing their braking and regenerating using mechanical and brake by wire devices on them and they've got these all-weather tires which they're constantly reviewing during the race as well and the overarching thing is these are predominantly on street tracks. And what we know about street tracks is you make a mistake, you get offline and you go onto marbles or you misjudge the apex speed. You're not going through some gravel or some tarmac. You're in the wall and it's you're going home. So all that soup of stuff I've just told you, and it is directly into one input, which is the driver. And I find that super interesting. And it's a bit of a misconception that Formula E's, because it's not the quickest, it is quick, but it's not Formula One quick. It's not sports car quick. It's not IndyCar quick. But it makes up for it in the cerebral, you know, this, this journey that the drivers go on during a race. And I think that actually is a great test. And, and people need to know more about that because it, it's not always picked up on TV, of course, because you're not, you know, you're not generally in the cockpit uh, or, or speaking to the guy straight after the race. So that's what I find fascinating from a driver's point of view. So these guys are like fighter pilots. Yeah, they are. They are in a very quiet plane, <laughs> in, a in a glider, maybe. Yeah, yeah, they are, and they, they, you know, they've got my utmost respect. I mean, all racing drivers do. I mean, sure as hell, I couldn't do it, and I, and I often feel guilty if I, you know, if I overly criticise a driver for a mistake or whatever. But because you know, I sure as hell couldn't do it. But you know, they're, they're paid well. Uh, manufacturers are on board in Formula E now, so they, you know, they do get paid very well, and, and rightly so because, as I said, they are they are challenged immeasurably i think with these races high pressure and of course the more manufacturers you get the more partners and the more eyes on the the championship the higher the pressure right. so psychologically you've got to cope with that as well and you know, obviously some do it better than others but it's it's just intriguing to to understand that that uh that combination of the driver and the equipment they have at their disposal and how they use it best in a race. Nice segue to our next segment. We're going to take a short break, come back. We're going to talk about our challenge and the challenge of Formula E and perhaps the races. So sit tight, keep the seatbelts on. We'll be right back. What began as a charitable car show has grown into the world's greatest collector car auctions. 
raising over $133 million for charitable organizations to date. For nearly 50 years, automotive enthusiasts from all over the world have enjoyed the Barrett-Jackson Collector Car Auctions, and I'm a huge fan. Regarded as the barometer of the collector car industry, their auctions are world-class lifestyle events where thousands of the world's most sought-after unique and valuable automobiles cross the block in front of a global audience, in person, on TV, or streamed online. Barrett-Jackson produces the world's greatest collector car auctions in Scottsdale, Arizona, Palm Beach, Florida, Las Vegas, Nevada, and new for 2021, Houston, Texas. The excitement of Barrett-Jackson auctions is contagious, and a unique experience is not to be missed. And be sure to visit BarrettJackson.com today. Barrett-Jackson, the world's greatest collector car auctions. I've discovered Linkage. It's a new quarterly publication and website that covers the automotive market, driving, restoring, collecting, and discovering your passion for motor vehicles. Linkage is about experiences, opinions, and values. Linkage is an actual, informed, reasoned opinion based on first-hand experiences. A talented Linkage team covers the automotive world, the people who share your passion and mine, smart, considered, rational, and experienced opinions, ones you can learn from and grow. That includes our passion that drives auctions and the collector car market. So come with me and join us on this journey. And be sure to use the code CARSYEAH when you subscribe, and they'll give you $10 off. Boom! Linkage, geared for the automotive life. Subscribe today at LinkageMag.com. So we're back, and I like to ask us about challenges. And since we're talking about Formula, we talked about that challenge the drivers have with challenges. And even you touched on the races. I want to touch on a little bit more about the races and the challenges with the racing series as a whole because of where they race and you're on street courses. Yeah, there's a whole nother factor there. And I, I can't even imagine what has to happen in these guys' heads. So having gone to as many races as you've gone to, I'll ask this of your opinion. You're not in the seat, but you're there. You talk to people. You know about all this. What are some of the most challenging racetracks for these Formula E drivers? Well, the, the thing about Formula E is that, like I said, predominantly they are street tracks. Now, these aren't just, uh, you know, Long Beach, for example, is a street track, but they've raced there for so long. It's kind of an element of plug in and play. You know, New York, which we saw at the weekend, uh, they, they did a doubleheader in, in Red Hook in uh, near Brooklyn in New York. And, you know, that track is a pop-up track. So the track is built a number of days before the action starts. And other circuits, so, you know, there are other circuits like Paris and Rome, which are literally in the city centre. So, first of all, from a operational and logistic sense, getting these things built, in the middle of a city is extremely difficult to no do. No kidding, yeah. Uh, they've got to balance the whole event and the buzz around the thing in the city centre and, and bringing new demographics into watching these races with obviously not um, not causing a great deal of disruption to the city itself. So that's on one side. From the driver's side, going to your question mark, the drivers to a person love street tracks i don't know of a driver i don't think i've ever met a driver who doesn't like street races you know it's a highway act if you make a mistake as we said you're in the wall you you look a bit of a fool and this season we've you know we are 
we've only got two events left this season. And there is not a driver on that grid, 24 drivers, that hasn't made a mistake and clouted a wall this year. That's the, the, the level we're talking about. You know, they're pushing every corner, every apex, every lap. And they inevitably, when you're, you know, when you're dancing on the highway, you're going to occasionally have a slip. And, and that's what happens. The, the, the tracks are very different. There is no track that is the same. So generally, it'll be a street circuit. There are a couple of what you call permanent or semi-permanent facilities that are used. The Autodromo Hermanos Rodriguez in Mexico City is usually used. And Again, the calendar has been affected by the pandemic somewhat, obviously, as as most series has over the last couple of years. So there's been some disruption. But, you know, we're going to London in a couple of weeks' time. We're going to race at the Excel Arena, which is a huge uh, arena in Docklands in London. And that's going to be actually through the arena. They're going to run partly inside and partly outside of the arena which will be a a novel a novel thing for sure and then you've got what we call airfield tracks or there is one airfield track in Tempelhof Berlin which if you think to I'm sure some of your your viewers and listeners will remember Cleveland the yep. Cleveland IndyCar race mm-hmm. very similar yeah. you know they they basically build a circuit out of the airfield um and run on that but we've raced in Hong Kong we've raced in Rome as I said Berlin um London New York Santiago and Chile. Monaco? And Monaco, of course, yeah, which they had a terrific this race year. earlier. Um, and one of the best races that Formula E has had. Uh, they used the full track for the first time because they used a, a slightly truncated version of the, the classic Monaco track for the first three occasions they raced there and then got on the full track and it was just a, a terrific race. So, right. yeah, I mean, the, the events themselves, you get that buzz. You know, when you go to a Detroit IndyCar race or an IMSA race, or you you know, you, you, you um, I think you're a similar vintage to me, Mark. You remember some of the great IndyCar street races oh, in yeah. the 80s. And, you know, yeah. these, these things are, they just get a different buzz to it. And um, I, I love trying to soak up a bit of that pre race to see. The, the 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 fans in the stands and hopefully that all comes back very soon i think everyone's aligned on that one everybody wants it to yes the first uh formula one race i ever went to was long beach grand prix and uh back when i was you know high school or college i believe it was 70s i think when they ran that first one and yeah. watch watch the greats on the track and luckily uh, my girlfriend at the time's dad got us back back screen passes if you will into the paddock and around the drivers and things and it was like oh my gosh this is so cool yeah do you see the formula of formula e i i I can only think given electric cars and the prevalence of what's happening formula e is going to grow and grow and grow more and more people are going to adapt to it experience it and go this is kind of neat i like this i think this is pretty good what's your vision of the future of formula e having gone through and written this book yeah, it's an interesting one. So they're, they're actually about to finish the what we call the Gen 2, the second rule set of Formula E. The, the third rule set is going to see lighter cars. It's going to see bigger batteries. Well, when I say bigger batteries, I mean the range will, there'll be a range extension on, on the, on the, on the batteries and there'll be more power. And I think there's going to probably, well, there is going to be an element of fast charging. So probably pit stops will return for a flash charge of the cars which is an interesting pretty cool sporting concept yeah i think the issue will be not necessarily in the third generation but maybe the fourth that the cars get so much quicker that actually they're going to have to look at containing the cars in the circuits in the environs of where they're racing because street tracks are whatever you're racing you know if, if two cars touch you do get some 
you can get a serious accident. And the, the close proximity of the of the grandstands, the walls, and, and so forth, they're going to have to look at that at some stage, which is why I think there's going to be more and more circuits that are using arenas. So we've got the, the Excel Arena I mentioned in London, but I think also they're probably going to look at some bigger sports stadia. Uh, Seoul in South Korea is going to use the the stadium that hosted the 1988 Olympic Games, for instance. So I can see there have been a more, a, more of a broader range of circuits. But I think what it will mean for the driver is it's going to be an even crazier ride. You know, these things are going to be super quick. Whether or not eventually they're going to include torque vectoring or whether they're going to include, um, you know, more MGU usage or some other performance enhancing stuff, there is a lot that they've got to be careful about because what's going to happen is when manufacturers you know when they're given freedom and there aren't necessarily spec parts and you can get into an arms race and very quickly a championship can implode we've seen it before in in sports cars we've seen it before in international touring cars you know to to an extent we've seen it in some us series as well the costs go up and it's unsustainable and i think formula e has to be wary that they have to control the cost. There has to be a cost capping to some degree. Otherwise, you know, the, the budget, the budgets have already gone up, you know, from season one, the teams were on yeah, approximately something between probably 10 and 20 million euros a season. And now the rumors, you know, we don't know this for sure, but there are what I call um, significant rumors that some of the manufacturers are spending uh, 45 to, to 60 million euros oh, a, a season, you know, so it's serious. It's serious stuff. I mean, that that includes marketing and so forth, but still, that's a lot of money. And yes, they go in racing for a reason, and there's a lot of sustainability messaging, but, you know, that could easily become 80, 90 million, and all of a sudden, you're in the realms of a big arms race. So, yeah, there has to, it has to be managed properly and correctly, and I'm, I'm sure they'll do it because they've, they've done it pretty well for the first five or six years of the championship. No doubt. Well, it's a marvelous book and I love it. Uh, it's really brought me up to speed, excuse the pun, uh, of Formula E and what it's all about because I was a little bit vague on my knowledge with it. So I'm really appreciative that you're bringing this up to up to pace. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about you because your passion for racing is your lifelong career. Um, is there a really special vehicle in your life that you've had in the past that uh, holds a place near and dear to your heart? I, I think I'm a bit curious, Mark. I do love road cars, but I'm I'm more race cars. So you could pick a race car. <laughs> I could pick a. But I tell you what, I've got quite an amusing one. So in terms of the cars that I've uh, I've owned, I, I did have a very small. And this is when I was a student, a, a Citroen AX hot hatch, which had little sort of. The, it's like the the opposite of go faster stripes these were little spots so it looked like a kind of a mobile 80s disco on wheels <laughs> and i and i drove this thing around the the lanes of cheshire in the north of england and i eventually you know, the, the inevitable happened and i i wrapped it around somebody's fence or something i think it was a uh-oh I glanced it off a tree as well and and um and dotty as she was called uh came to a premature uh premature it, end dot <laughs> i like the way you say that dotty as she was Dot's, called dotty yeah, Dotty. Dotty. Um, yeah, we had a we had a memorial service for her after that incident. That was gone. But didn't they actually race? Some of the people race those things, like rally race, or they were road we, raced. Uh, over here in the UK, if it's got wheels, we we race it. And <laughs> I, know, I know things are similar over there in the US. I think it was well. called the the Bird Cup or something that had that raced those things. I, it wouldn't surprise me. It wouldn't surprise <laughs> me. They race. Um, they raced Citroen two CVs. You know the the Dershaver, oh, the two yeah. CVs. They raced yeah. those over twenty four hours over here. So oh my god. Gosh. 
anything goes. But no, um, you know, I've not owned a race car, but you know, if I if I were to own one, then I'd, I'd probably keep it in the in the family, so, so to speak, with a Lola. So I'd love a Lola T seventy, a Mark Three oh. B. Well, yeah, um, no kidding. Well, and you'd hang that over your fireplace, I would assume, on the wall. Oh, obviously, yeah, yeah. obviously, <laughs> a little nod to to Joe Bo there. <laughs> yeah, but, to, uh, to Joe for yeah. sure. Yeah, it's cool. I'm going to crawl into your skull here a little bit, and I do this with all my guests. I ask the question that nobody's probably ever asked you, and that is if you were manifest as a vehicle. This isn't what you want to be. This is your personality wrapped into this vehicle. What would you be? But the most important part of the question is why. Wow. Um, I think I think uh, I'd like to think I would be a BMW CSL. Ooh. One of those kind of uh, why because I think. It's it's solid, and you know I'm quite a solid chap. I'm <laughs> I um you know I I used to I used to play football, and I, I love my sports. A little bit sporty, but also I'd like to think quite sturdy. And um, you know I I think in in whatever you do professionally, you, you've got to be a bit robust. You can't have too thin a skin, especially in journalism. That's for sure. Uh, and, and you know don't you you got to have your own personality, but don't take things personally if you know what I mean. So. I, I don't know an orange uh, BMW CSL, and I um, I hark back to a to a relative who had one of those in the seventies, and I, you know if if I if I were to be a car, I'd like to think that would be the one. Those are beautiful vehicles. I love the greenhouse effect on those cars with that very small C pillar. If you back in in the back, if you will, and I have a good buddy here, Bill, who bought one in Europe and brought it over. That was a 3.0 CS, so Euro version, beautiful dove gray with a dark blue interior. Uh, nice. It was just a, a wonderful, wonderful car. Yeah, I had for a yeah. while and got to uh, be in that thing and enjoy it. So nice choice, but uh, more importantly, I like the way you described it as relating <laughs> relating to you. Well, I always ask my guests about a great book they love. And we're, of course, today we're talking about Sam Smith's book, uh, Formula E, A Racing for the Future. I'm going to put a link to that book on Sam Shono's page uh, where you can get a copy uh, once they're out. What is the date of release for the book right now? Do you have a release date? Yeah, the, the, the book has been released in, in Europe. Um, in the States, it will, I think it is the week, uh, it will be this week, I believe. Okay. So um, the week after the New York, New York City, pre. so end of, let's say end of July, it should be available for, for everyone over there. There you go. Again, I'll make sure I put a link. Uh, if you love racing and you love new technology, this is the book to put on your library shelf and enjoy and learn from. We're going to take one more short break and we come back. I'm going to take you on the ultimate drive, Sam. You get to choose. So be thinking about that and we'll be right back. Have you looked under your hood recently? The average car today has more than 70 computers and 100 million lines of code. Today and tomorrow, being a professional technician requires an understanding of technology, computers, and electrical systems that are highly advanced and very complex. Cars yeah is honored to support TechForce Foundation as our charity of choice. Their efforts to help young people pursue a technical education and a fulfilling career as automotive techs is the key to an inspired life. Through scholarships, grants, and good old-fashioned hands-on experiences with vehicles, TechForce and Cars yeah are working together to connect young people with viable careers. Join us and learn more by visiting techforce.org today. All right, so I have a magic scepter. 
And this enables me to allow you to go on the ultimate drive. That means you get to pick the vehicle. You get to pick who you're with. It could be a few people or one. Where are you going to be going? Who's at the wheel? So what does your ultimate drive look like today, Sam? My ultimate drive would probably be an Aston Martin. I, I really like Aston Martins. I, I love Astons. A DBR, I don't know, DBR9? Nine. Possibly, yeah. Let's let's say DBR9. Who is in the car with me? Well, yeah, if it's an Aston, it's, you know, I, I probably should have chosen an American car and got Mario or a Ferrari <laughs> stuck Mario. I think it, Mario but. would be fine in any car. <laughs> <laughs> I, do you know what? I, I think somebody, it's going to be somebody in racing. I probably choose Colin Chapman because I, I you know, I think he, I, I never met Colin Chapman, but I, I know lots of people who work for him and work with him. And uh, I've met a few drivers who drove for him, been quite lucky in that regard. And he just seems a fascinating character. I don't think it'd be an easy journey. I think <laughs> no. it'd be challenging because <laughs> yeah. he was he was a quite a, a fairly complex guy. But obviously, you know, I, I think the definition of a genius is not somebody who's easy and, you know, breezes through life and is a success and makes lots of money. It's somebody who knows what it's like to work their way up. It's somebody who's a challenging. It's somebody who thinks in a completely different way. And I think for an engineer like Colin Chapman to achieve what he achieved and to have uh, the thing that fascinates me about Colin Chapman is the relationships he had with his team and his drivers in particular and such a range of different characters. You know, I don't even get any, any diff- more different characters than Jim Clark and say, um, Jochen Rint, for instance, oh, or, or, yes. or even, you know, even Mario, Mario Andretti, they all won, they all won championships with and for Colin Chapman. And um, yeah, I, I, I just like to go on a long drive with, with Mr. Chapman or Chunky, as he was known to, <laughs> to many in the, uh, in the in the Formula One paddock. And I, I find his life fascinating uh, for lots of different reasons. But, you know, I'd, 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 I'd like to just dig into him and try and get into his head for, for a couple of hours at least. Well, no kidding. As a journalist, what a treat that would be. Nice choice. Nice choice. Well, you've taken us on a wonderful drive today. I think I could talk for hours with you about racing and cars, and no doubt maybe we'll have you come back uh, when the next book comes along. But before I let you go, could you share maybe some parting words of wisdom or advice with us? Uh, Well, the first thing is be nice. (laughs) That helps, (laughs) doesn't it? Which is a little bit, I suppose, lame, but it's it's sound advice. Yeah, be be nice to to each other. But no, I, I, I think advice uh, follow follow what you love you know just if, if you're passionate about something and if you want to you know you, you want to get involved in something don't think too hard about it jump in and then worry about all the other things once you've jumped in yeah absolutely <laughs> simple you know it's a quite quite a good mantra for life i think and uh you know i i'm, I'm fairly sure we only get one crack at it so you know go for it and that's what I that's what I tell a lot of uh, people who contact me, um, youngsters who want to get involved in racing. Uh, that's, that's, that's the best thing to do. Just start. Best time to start was yesterday. So there you go. And I love, I love it. Be nice to each other. Again, this new book by Sam Smith, Formula E, Racing for the Future is absolutely spectacular. I want to do a shout out to my good friends, Rebecca Leppard and Judy Stropas. They're the ones that introduced me to Sam. Uh, Both those ladies bring so many great guests here to Cars Yeah. So Judy, Rebecca, thank you. Very, very much. Very kind of you. Sam, thanks for being so generous today with your time and expertise and for sharing your experiences uh, with our listeners. Love the new book. Congratulations. Until you and I talk again, I'll see you very quietly 
down the road. Thank you very much, Mark. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah.